I was thinking, Abby did such a great job. Like, do we really need to talk about evangelism? Because that's a good stuff. Um, yeah, let's start, let's start with a, a good morning. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Pastor Jeff is on vacation with Angie for the next two weeks. He asked me to fill in to a short sermon series, and I pitched a little bit of a fit because it's in September, and that's like the busiest time for youth ministry. But, you know, it's okay. It's all right. Um, I, I like to give him a hard time. Um, before we begin, let's pray. Father, I pray that you will give me the words to speak this morning, that what has been prepared is what is true and will point us to your love, your mercy, to your righteousness. Amen. So when I started preparing this, I was all set. I was going to do a, a two-part look at Jonah, and I had multiple pages done, and then I realized I just talked about Jonah with you all, like, not that long ago, <laughs> during the sabbatical period, and I realized apparently Jonah is a bit of my go-to, because I really like Jonah. So, I shifted gears slightly and uh, decided we're going to look at something that's related to that, uh, but is definitely deserving of a deeper look, and that's evangelism, otherwise known as spreading the gospel, talking about Jesus, preaching the word, missions, outreach, there's many different phrases that you could use. The practice of evangelism, no matter how you phrase it, it doesn't come easy for everyone. Now, if you are one of the few that relishes in the opportunity to talk at someone regarding Jesus, you are in the minority. Most people don't relish the thought of just walking up to a stranger and being like, have you heard about Jesus? Like most of us, freaks us out. We don't want to do that. It's right up there with public speaking as being a top fear for most people of just, no, thank you. But that's where we get this evangelism thing wrong by compressing it and folding it and, and shoving it down into a tiny little box, something that we can sort of understand, maybe possibly sort of, we rob evangelism of its beauty. So a quick story. Back in 2006, it was after less than a year that I spent at Kirkwood. It was not a great time. Um, I moved away from Burlington, Iowa to Portland, Oregon. And there I enrolled in Multnomah Bible College and immediately fell in love with the atmosphere. I loved my fellow students, my professors. I loved everything about this experience. It completely changed my life. And then there was one day that well, there was an all-school event, and I did not love that. In fact, I was very upset about it. Um, I desperately, desperately wished that I could get out of it. It was called Day of Outreach. And on this day, all students were required to participate. Like, if you did not participate, you got a failing grade. Like, this was actually, like, a requirement as part of being enrolled in this school. Um, you were required to participate in one of dozens of outreach opportunities to serve the community. And most of these were manual labor, and I was not vibing with that. I was like, nah, don't want to do that. So I scanned the list, and I was like, I'm just going to pick this one, downtown ministry. That sounds fun, I guess. And again, really bad attitude, like 19 years old. Yeah. Um, 
this was apparently code for street evangelism, which made me even more upset. Um, day of outreach arrived, and I headed out with my group. We went to the downtown area. We split up into groups, and our job was to just go out and tell people about Jesus. And I was just like, why? Okay. And the guy I got paired with was very outgoing. Like, I'm, I'm an extrovert, but I was an introvert compared to this guy. He was way outgoing. Um, and he was honestly a bit oblivious to some church issues. I was on edge the entire time. Okay? The, like, I'm like following along and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I have made a mistake. Why did I not want to go pull weeds? This is horrible. Why can't I just go get some coffee and we'll just be done? Ugh. There was a few, shall we say, colorful interactions from that morning that I still remember to this day. One was with a lady who was convinced of some really messed up things about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Now, for context, this was less than six months after the Da Vinci Code movie had come out. So, yeah, and we were trying to talk to her, and she's like, no, if you read between the lines. We're like, that's, that's not true. She's like, no, if you look at the spacing between the letters and the lines, it says this. And we're like, no, no, no. Um, then there was another guy who, as we started talking to him, he's nodding. He, he's, I remember he's seated on a bench at one of the bus stops. And he's looking up at us, he's nodding. And as we're talking, he reaches into his shirt, and he pulls out three, four, maybe five necklaces, each with a different symbol associated with the various religions. And he found the one with the cross, he kept that one out, and then he put the others back, like the, the crescent moon and the Star of David, and there was one about Wicca, and it, like all sorts of stuff. And he just shoved that back in and left the cross one out. And I immediately picked up on this, because I'm like, that's weird. Um, my partner did not. He suddenly noticed the cross necklace, and he got really excited. He's like, oh, my brother. And he just like, just sped along. And I'm like, dude, hush. Like, this isn't going to end well. This, this guy had, this guy that we were talking to, he had no interest at all in listening to some random college kid that he didn't know talk about Jesus. He just, he wasn't interested. Now, near the end of our time downtown, we began to be followed by some security officers because my partner was making people uncomfortable, and not just me. He was making other people uncomfortable, so we're walking, and there's security officers following, and I'm just like, dude, stop it. And, yeah, so I grabbed him by the shirt, and I pulled him into the Pioneer Place Shopping Center so we could avoid security, and we hid out in the crowd, and he's like, where are we going? And I'm just like, we're going to our bus stop. Stop it. So, all in all, I'd rate this experience a solid three out of ten. Um, I didn't get assaulted. I didn't get arrested. But there were some really angry people because the guy I was with couldn't read the room. So, honestly, my opinion on that specific experience has not changed at all in the end. But what has changed, though, is my understanding of what evangelism actually is. Going into that experience, I had a very narrow understanding of what evangelism was. I was like, this is what it looks like. This is what it means for evangelism. <coughs> Sorry. Um, 
And that has changed. Or rather, I've, I've gradually realized that evangelism isn't limited to talking to random people who wish you'd get the hint and go away. Evangelism also applies to all believers, not just missionaries, not just the pastors, not just the extroverts. It applies to all of us. And on top of that, its, it's practice doesn't require a spiritual gifting. And that last part might come as a shock to you, but feel free to check out Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Paul doesn't say that evangelism is a specific gift. He says that the evangelist, as in the, the type of church leader, is given to the church to help equip and build up body of believers. But he doesn't say that only certain people are gifted with the gift of evangelism. So if you are coming into this morning's message thinking, I can tune this out because I'm not going to the missions field and I don't like talking to people and it, you know, it's not my gift. You should rethink your exegesis because it's not what Scripture says. So this is going to be a two-part series. Today we're going to focus on the what and the why of evangelism, and next week we're going to talk about more of the how. And before we talk about the methodology of, of evangelism next Sunday, we first need to have a more complete understanding of what evangelism is and why it is important. Now if I had to guess, the first passage of Scripture that most people think of when the topic turns to evangelism, is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Otherwise known as the Great Commission. Show of hands, anybody think of the Great Commission? It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I am not about to say that you're wrong for going to that famous passage when thinking about evangelism. Okay? It does partially apply. But, Going straight to that reference is <coughs> like having not seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then you skip to the end of the third movie and just watch the final climactic battle and stuff like that. Okay, yes, The Return of the King is a cinematic masterpiece, and it deserves all 11 Oscars. Come at me, okay? It's amazing. But you'd have a hard time understanding what's going on and who the characters are and why it's important if you just started at the end, okay? Likewise, Jesus' final command to his disciples was the culmination to the conversation. It was the end of the conversation. It's literally at the end of his earthly ministry. So if you start there, you're missing out on everything that has led up to it, everything that has laid the groundwork, okay? To understand the what and the why of evangelism, we need to go back, way back. Now, here's my big claim of the morning. The practice or the attitude of evangelism can be found throughout the Old Testament. And you might wonder, how is that even possible? I love how Joe Aldrich, who is a former president of Multnomah Bible College, he described evangelism in this way. Evangelism is displaying the universals of God's character, his love, his righteousness, his justice, and his faithfulness through the particulars of our everyday life. That's such a great description. In other words, evangelism is simply the telling of what God has done in your life. And if that is the case, if that's what evangelism is, then the first person to practice evangelism wasn't one of the disciples, it wasn't one of the authors of the New Testament. 
the first person to make a statement in Scripture about the character of God is Eve. Turn back to Genesis 4, verse 1. Eve gets pregnant, and after she gives birth, for the first time she, she says, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. In other words, hey, this amazing thing that just happened, the, this arrival of new life, yeah, it wasn't just me. This happened because of God. Eve knows the pain that she went through was because of the curse. She also knows, though, that it was because of God that she was able to get through that. And she is now holding her newborn son in her arms because God helped her. And she just declares it. This thing that just happened and this, this new life is because of God. Adam, let me tell you about this. Now, from that first family, we see a steady revelation of God's character, which often happened through people or even angels telling others about what God had done or what he is like. <coughs> so, for instance, jump over to Genesis 14, verse 19. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, says this. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor or creator of heaven and earth. How about when the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16, verse 11? Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And her response in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looked after me. In just those three examples, we already have a pretty good picture, a pretty good idea of who God is. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He knows when we are suffering. And not only that, he takes a personal interest. He cares about our suffering. He cares and looks after us. Those are pretty big claims about God. We jump forward many hundreds of years later to Exodus 3, 6. I know we're jumping around. I listed all the references I went to, so you can also look them up. They're also up here. <coughs> sorry, but not sorry. There's, there's lots that the Bible has to say about evangelism, and I'm excited about it. Um, so now, Exodus 3. We have Moses, who's, who's gone into the wilderness. He sees a bush on fire that doesn't burn up, and he hears God speaking to him from within the burning bush. And Moses is confused by this, and he hears, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That means he's not one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He's not some other deity. He's not some other idol. He's the same God that his ancestors had talked about. The same God that had been with Eve and Abram and Hagar. But even with those stories that had been passed down, Moses and the Israelites, they were still limited in what they knew about God. They they had picked up little bits and pieces throughout, and they were they were grasping onto it, trying to get a, a more full picture of who God is. But they didn't even know his name. And this is why in verses 13 through 15, we read this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, Moses is able to better describe who God is. He can share his name. If the purpose of evangelism, as Dr. Joe put it, is to tell people of what God has done in your life, starting with the God of our ancestors saw fit to tell me his personal name. We are on a first name basis now. Let me tell you about God. That's a pretty great start. So over and over, we're, we're seeing this thread of how the character, the, the person of God is revealed to people and they are gaining a, a, a bigger and bigger understanding. Now you just have his name. And there are plenty of songs of praise in the Old Testament that describe God's attributes. Miriam after the Red Sea crossing comes to mind. Uh, but we can't forget Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, verses 2 and then 6 through 8. He says, there is none holy like the Lord, there is, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, of course, we can't skip the Psalms, which are absolutely filled with descriptions of Yahweh. For instance, um, Psalm 25, 8-10 says, The good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leaves the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And just in those small sections of Scripture, we read that the Lord isn't more powerful than anyone else. He has authority over life and death. He elevates the poor and needy. He doesn't forget about them. He doesn't toss them aside. He is good and he is honorable. He leads us and teaches us what is right. He can be counted on. He is consistent. He loves us and he stands by his promises. All of this is laid out in the Old Testament. And we're barely scratching the surface of the first half of the Old Testament. If you take a look at the prophets, you're going to see even more. There's Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now we have the ability to take refuge in God as he knows them personally. Zephaniah 3, 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. God is our defense. He knows those who trust him. His justice can be counted on. He doesn't, he doesn't forget us or, or move on. So the question of what is evangelism? It's the proclaiming of the character and the attributes and deeds of Yahweh God. It is saying, look at what God has done. I've got to tell you more about him. That's evangelism leads us to the question of why. Why should we evangelize? And again, you could lean on the Great Commission found in Matthew and say, because we're told to. And technically, you would not be wrong. There is an element of evangelism in the final command from Jesus, 
but because I told you to is a pretty basic and honestly simplistic answer. And as anyone who has spent any length of time with a little kid knows, because I said so is not an answer we like to hear. I've tried it multiple times in like the last 24 hours. It doesn't work. Because I said, because dad said so. (laughs) Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we are shown how humanity desires to know God. It's not just a because we're told so. We are shown. We can't help but keep telling people of all the things we have discovered about him, whether it be Melchizedek telling Abram that he is blessed by the creator of the universe, or Hagar being told by an angel that God has heard her prayers, and she says, I've been seen by God who cares for me. Moses telling the people of Israel that the that he knows the personal name of the very God that their ancestors worshipped, and that he's going to rescue them from slavery, or Hannah telling us that God cares for the poor, or even all the way back to the beginning, when Eve simply declared, it is by God that I have given birth to a son. Throughout human history, we, we are compelled to tell people of what is going on, of what God has done. From the beginning, humanity has always sought to understand and to, and to know God. Can he be trusted? Does he hear my prayer? Will he rescue me? Is he like this idol? Is he like that idol? Like who, who is he? Will he reveal himself to me? Okay. Look at Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. He reassures the homeless Israelite people, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. <coughs> There is something indescribable, something deep within our souls that longs to recognize God, to be found by our Creator, to be in relationship with the one who knows us. And this longing is so strong that it unfortunately can pull people towards false religions and idols. As we saw in the video that Abby shared, people have questions, and like, I don't know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and you know, the God is just the one that I, it's my God, and it's this and this. Maybe he's here. Maybe he's over there. What if I just do my best to be kind? Maybe that's going to be enough. Maybe God is within all of us. But the, the true answer to our longing is Yahweh, God and God alone. The story of Scripture continually paints a picture of creation, knowing deep down that without God, it will forever be broken. Knowing that something's missing. It's not just something we made up, but there's something innate inside of us that says, yeah, something's broken. Even when people are looking in the wrong places, there is an undeniable longing for the divine. Throughout human history, we have tried to fill that longing with all sorts of loves that aren't God. You can look at Paul, as he says in Romans 1, 19-21, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our Father in heaven knows that we need him, that we don't have the ability or the willpower or the holiness to come to him on our own. And instead of allowing us to forever search around in the, in the muck and the mud without hope for true reconciliation, he made a way because of his love. He didn't leave it up to us to find him on our own. Enter Jesus. Jesus is the fullest, truest, best reflection of our Father God because he, the Son, is God. The only way for your soul to find what it has been truly longing for is to know Jesus. John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul wrote in his letter to Christians in Colossae, Colossians 1, 15, he, or Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the author of Hebrews brings his, or begins his sermon with this claim in chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for saints, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus fulfills the longing of our hearts. And through his death and resurrection, he made a way for us to be reconciled to our creator. That's the good news. It is the ultimate good news. And it is, it is hinted at throughout the Old Testament. It is not just a whole bunch of stories in the Old Testament and then, boom, Jesus gets there and arrives in the New Testament, and there's nothing connecting the two. No, throughout the Old Testament, it is hinting at our need for, for an answer, our need for reconciliation with God, and then God provides a way. Okay, little by little, bit by bit, mankind has tried to make it back to Yahweh. We have grasped at anything that, we're like, yeah, that sounds like God, that sounds like God, or actual inter interactions with God, be like, yeah, let me tell you more about him. But it took Jesus to finally make a way. So the why of evangelism is because people not only need to know the good news, they want to know the good news. There is something that drives them that's like, yeah, I'm going to, I need to find something more to life. I need to find some more meaning. I'm going to look here. I'm going to look there. I'm going to look over here. There is something that they know that they need. And that is why evangelism is important. <coughs> so here's the turn then. We talked about what evangelism is. It's a reflection and, and the telling of God's character um, through our own everyday life. We talked about the why of evangelism. Uh, the why of evangelism. Because um, all creation is crying out and desires to know God. But before... We talk next week about the how of evangelism. We need to confront the ugly truth. Why do we so often not participate? Why do we not seem to care? Why do we pawn it off on other people? And we say, nah, the, the missionaries will handle it, or the pastors will handle it. Why, why do we not care? We talked about the tension 
that we live in as a result of being caught between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And this tension, it often reveals itself when we have opportunities to share the hope of Jesus, but we stay silent. Like there's a hurdle and we can't get past it. We're like, I know I should say something, but mm, can't get over it. Nope, I'm just going to go the other way. There's all kinds of excuses for why we stay silent. But let's just look at a handful. Number one, fear. The idea of sharing our faith with someone can be scary. Maybe you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing, or you're afraid that your coworkers will suddenly treat you different. Maybe you're afraid that your neighbor will actually want to know more about Jesus and start asking questions that you don't have the answer to. Maybe you're afraid that if you say something, you're going to get sucked into an argument. And your only counter to this argument will be, uh-uh, like, you don't have any, anything to go back on. It's no secret that in this post-Christian culture, it's widely accepted that all truth is valid. And that is exhausting. Because how can what is true for me be true for me, and what is true for you be true for you, but if my truth says that your truth is a lie— uh, is they both still true? What? And you're thinking, all I wanted to do was say that Jesus loves you. And now you're coming at me with deep philosophical turn of phrases and logical fallacies and, and maybe some actual legitimate like fears and hurts that you've had. And I'm not ready for debate right now. And I should have just stayed silent. You are afraid of having those interactions with people. Number two. There's too many people. Like, there are so many people out there. You walk through Lincoln Park during Teens in Town or Farmer's, Mar Farmer's Market or downtown during the Homecoming Parade, and you are suddenly face-to-face -face with dozens of different people every 30 seconds, and that's just in our community. Have you ever caught yourself thinking, like, maybe you're driving along the freeway, and you're like, person woke up this morning and they've had interactions with other people and they felt sad or happy or anxious or something else entirely and I don't understand what they're going through and so did that person and that person and that person and that person all of them and it gets overwhelming that we realize that all people are actually living lives and they're interacting with the world in different ways and they need Jesus, and they need Jesus, and they desperately need him. To maintain some sort of equilibrium, we tend to ignore crowds then. What people? I don't see no people. One person or a hundred, it all becomes zero, so we can just put one foot in front of the other, guess where we're going. I just need to go into Walmart and get this one thing that I forgot the last three trips. Nobody talked to me. Legitimately, there have been times I've gone to Walmart and I've put in earbuds and then not plugged into anything before this goes into my pocket. And I'm like, oh, don't want to talk to you. Number three, we're too busy. Anyone else busy? You're all liars. Just kidding. Is anybody else busy? Okay. I know we're all busy. Okay. Life is fast and complicated. And we are always connected. 
and always being pulled in a million directions. There's career deadlines and car problems and another phone call and another text. And the TV in the next room is turned up so you can hear in the next room that across the world there is yet another crisis and another earthquake and another tsunami and another war. And it all demands your attention. And if you don't say something, it feels that you're being selfish. Ding! Another notification from social media. Ding! Another reminder from your calendar about tomorrow. And your kids need you and your spouse needs you. And did you see that latest episode of the latest hit show? You better be prepared if you say something about it. And you better have the right description what is going on in the latest episode? Your friend is having a bad day, so you got to respond to that. And wait, did I eat lunch today? Did I eat lunch this week? Did I remember to go to the store? Did I get my work done, or am I falling behind yet again? We are all caught in this, to, to use something that we are all aware of, a derecho of activities and of schedules and events and responsibilities, and they are constantly threatening to knock us off of our feet. And now the pastor says that we're supposed to add evangelism on top of that. Oh no, how am I going to fit this into my schedule? Number four, no relatability. In our efforts to separate ourselves from a culture that is at the moment more self-focused than God-focused, the majority of evangelical Christians, we've We've lost our ability to relate significantly to non-Christians. We've, we've sequestered ourselves. We've put ourselves in a little bubble, and we don't want to talk to other people. Or as Dr. Joe put it, frequently the unsaved are viewed as enemies rather than victims of the enemy. We too often put ourselves in our own bubbles only to realize that the only people that we're spending time with are the people that we go to church with. And then those people already know about Jesus. So I guess evangelism doesn't apply to me because it's already been done. No wonder so many people shrug off evangelism as something that's better left to the pastor. You, you bump into someone by accident and be like, you should come to church. Well, why? My pastor can explain it. And then suddenly the line's locked the other way. Number five, there's a lack of credibility. Local churches like ours, we face a reality that cannot be ignored. Our communities are not as quick to trust us anymore. It used to be that a church, like if, if we were connected to something, if there was an event going on in town and it, and it said hosted by this church or connected to that church, it gave a certain level of respect just automatically off the cuff. Now, we've all seen the headlines, we've read the exposés, we watch the documentaries, of churches that have completely destroyed their reputation because they lost sight of Jesus. But we're not the only ones who have seen that. The non-church people have seen it. The unbelievers have seen all the same stuff, and they've seen us fighting on social media, and they've seen us pointing fingers at each other and mocking the other churches and doing this and doing this. And these people who are looking for hope and looking to fill that God-shaped hole in their heart they see other Christians, or they see Christians and how we act, and they decide to look elsewhere. Why would they want to listen if they're just like, oh, it's a lot of those churches. Makes evangelism kind of hard. And instead of doing the hard work of showing that we are actually followers of Jesus, not just talkers about Jesus, 
we point fingers at each other, we try to shift the blame, and we try to build up our own little mini kingdoms and be like, my church is better than your church. Christians, we gotta we gotta be good news before we attempt to share good news. The good news of the gospel needs to be apparent in your life before it's verbalized. If the people in this small community of DeWitt don't see the love of Christ in you, why on earth would any of them listen to you? Why? If they don't see Jesus in you, why would they listen? Or, to quote Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6. This is often used in weddings and anniversary cards and all that, but it just uh, applies to Christians, okay? 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. If we don't have love, why would people listen? So what do we do in light of discomfort? What do we do in spite of these mental hurdles that convince us that evangelism just isn't worth the effort? I'm not going to discount them. Fear of saying something theologically wrong, of feeling small in this big world of being overwhelmed by our busy schedules, the having lack of knowledge when it comes to addressing cultural touch points, the battling against the effects of other Christians' bad decisions. These are all real hurdles, and they take real work to get past. I am not discounting them. I'm not saying, eh, just get over it. I'm not saying that. Okay? These are all real hurdles that we each have to battle with every single week, every single day. But as you reflect this week on the barriers in your own life, how they might be keeping you from engaging in a lifestyle of evangelism, here's a sneak peek of what we're going to talk about next week. Just two suggestions on how to press on this week. Two suggestions on how you can just tell. Tell people about God. Number one is keep pursuing Jesus. There's an old saying that goes something like, you can't lead anyone else further than you've gone yourself. It is impossible to invite someone to grow in their relationship with Jesus if you are not doing the same. Remember John 14, 6 and 7. The only way to know God is to know Jesus. Just keep pursuing Jesus. Number two, be able to share what God is doing in your life. 1 Peter 3, 15 says to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That doesn't mean be ready to argue or to debate. You simply need to be ready to tell your story of what God has done in your life. Telling your story 
does not require that you already have all the answers to all the possible questions that you possibly might get. You just have to be honest about what Jesus has done for you, how your life has been changed, how God has shown that he loves you, how you can just help to say, hey, can I tell you my story? And just leave it at that. Next week, we'll talk more about those fears and those hurdles, how we can get past them. But we're already over time. So let's pray. Father, we praise you. We rest in your mercy. We, we lean not on our own understanding, but on you, on what you have done in each of our lives how you have provided evidence for yourself throughout all creation, how we can see you in all the little things. And I pray that as we move forward, that we will not be tempted to push evangelism off to the side and, and treat it as something that's just for the missionaries or just the pastors or just the, the outgoing people, but realize that it is for all of us to tell who you are to this world that is desperately seeking and desperately wants to know. In your holy son's name we pray, amen.